You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every month, the museum brings you interesting talks with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. Our guests today are Paul Cruikshank and Tim Lister. Paul is a CNN terrorism analyst and an investigative reporter specializing in al-Qaeda, ISIS, and jihadist terrorist groups. He's an alumni fellow at the Center on Law and Security at New York University's School of Law and previously worked as an investigative journalist in London, reporting on al-Qaeda and its European affiliates, and was part of the CNN reporting team that covered the London July 7, 2005 attacks. Tim covered international news for over 25 years as a producer and reporter for the BBC and CNN. He has both lived and worked in the Middle East, and has also worked in Afghanistan and Pakistan. In 2004, he produced the award-winning documentary Between Hope and Fear, Journeys in the New Iraq for CNN. And he's now a contributor and producer for Turner Broadcasting, where he writes for CNN.com on international topics, including security issues, terrorism, and Europe. Paul, Tim, welcome to the International Spy Museum. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's great to be with you. So the reason you're both here today is that you are the co-authors of a book that is now coming out in the United States called Agent Storm, My Life Inside Al-Qaeda and CIA, which you co-wrote with the Agent Storm in question, Morton Storm. Tim, I want to ask you, how did you first hear about the story of Morton Storm? Well, it's pretty interesting because we'd been in touch with some Danish journalists on other jihadist-related issues. And um, there's a newspaper in Denmark called Jyllands Posten that uh, Morton first approached with his amazing story. They published it at some length. And uh, we managed to trace Morton partly through them, but partly through a company that he'd once run, an outdoor adventure company. And once we located him, after a little bit of negotiation, he agreed to do an interview for television. And then we thought, there's enough here for a book. And I actually first came across Morton um, back in 2005. Uh, I was reporting on some radical groups uh, in the UK, and I'd I'd gone up to um, a meeting organized by one of them, a group called Al-Muhajarun, which is a pro-Al-Qaeda group uh, in Britain, and uh, the leader of the group at the time had invited me up there. And outside, um, after the event, there were a few guys who, who were sort of talking to me from the group. And all those years later, when I first met Morton, I'd realized that I'd met him back in 2005 when he was still very radical. The story itself, if you told it to me without knowing the background, it's almost unbelievable. I I think, uh, I imagine you had to put many, many hours as journalists into investigating the, the, the legitimacy of this story before anything. I mean, in Europe, you're probably a lot more familiar with the story before the United States. I mean, we're just starting to 
become familiar with this, especially now that books come out, we're going to be even more familiar, and then we'll talk about the movie shortly. Um, but as a journalist, as a historian myself, if I saw a story like this, I'd be like, I, I need to do a lot of investigation. How much independent investigation did you do into the story? Oh, a hu- huge amount. And obviously, we wanted it to be in our, in our comfort zone. And what's so unique about Morton's story uh, is he has gigabytes and gigabytes of audiovisual uh, data which corroborate uh, his account. And they also sort of en- enrich in his account when, you, when you're kind of uh, working with him to kind of write the story. Um, you have actual conversations between him and his CIA handlers, actual conversations with his Danish intelligence uh, handlers. You have emails between him and the terrorists. You have invoices from front companies uh, used by Danish intelligence to pay him. You have visa stamps, so you're able to chart all the various trips that he makes over the years, and you're able to fit that very closely uh, with his account. We, we had, what, Tim, like almost 100 hours of, of recordings uh, by the end of it with Morrison. Yes, we did, and we went over his experiences time and again to make sure that what he told us held water. We covered the dates, checked them off against um, other sources and where he could have been and what he might have seen and who he might have met, and it all fit really well. Plus, we went to Denmark and spoke to friends and family there as well to get uh, more texture on his early life, which was pretty remarkable, and pretty, uh, pretty much of an upheaval for him. So uh, we, we got to really know the guy very, very well and uh, checked everything off. It took a long time, all the research. The writing was, if anything, the easy bit. Had, had you two worked together before uh, with CNN or, or writing other things together? Absolutely. We, we, Tim and I had done sort of much reporting together, a lot of articles over the years, reporting on um, al-Qaeda terrorism and all the other different affiliates of, of al-Qaeda and the threat to Europe and the United States. And so when this story came out, when we first saw it, we were like, blooming heck, you know, this is, this is the story of all stories. I mean, this is quite a remarkable account of someone who not only went deep inside uh, the world of al-Qaeda, but also deep inside the world of Western intelligence. No one like him has come forward to tell their story in the, in the post-9-11 age. Well, there's clearly some, some controversy with this book, with the idea that the, the CIA does not acknowledge his role uh, in finding and, and eventually you know, being part of the death of Anwar al-Awlaki. Um, here at the Spy Museum, we try to be as objective as we possibly can. As a historian, I try to be as unbiased as I possibly can. As journalists, that's part of what you try to do as well. Um, but I imagine... Do you come down on one side or the other? I know you're, you know Morton Storm. You've worked with him now for years. Is there a a uh, a temptation to kind of put the journalism aside a little bit and say oh, this guy has to be telling the truth? Well, there are two interesting data points here. One is this recording with this CIA handler, and in that recording, uh, this CIA handler who's called Michael, he 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 says on tape, uh, "You played the highest role." Um, and that could be interpreted in many different ways, but clearly that was in the operation to go after Al Laki. Now, whether that was the overall operation or the final specific bit of it is, is open to obviously interpretation. Clearly, the CIA's interpretation, according to that recording, was the final specific bit of it uh, wasn't Morton because they weren't able to give him the money. But later, a year later, there's another recording with uh, Danish intelligence where they say on tape, that Morton uh, was not treated well over the Arlaki thing, uh, that, and they're apologizing him, to him for, for this. So his own handlers in Denmark saying, uh, you should have got the $5 million reward, essentially, on tape. Uh, so those are, those are two interesting data points, uh, which, as far as Morton is concerned, uh, he sees that as corroborating his story, and, and you know, for legitimate reasons. 
there's an even potentially more controversial part of this book in that uh, at least Morton Storm's compatriot, whether he was an al-Qaeda, uh, you know, jihadist or a double agent himself, warned Morton Storm in Asia that the CIA was uh, plotting to kill him to kind of get him out of the way so that he can't talk about what the, his role in al and everything else. Um, this is in the book, certainly. This is left somewhat ambiguously in the book so that the reader can make up their own mind. Um, and it almost seems like Storm doesn't really buy this as much himself. Am I... Am I reading that correctly? When Absolutely, was, yeah, uh, he doesn't. So. He doesn't so. know yeah. uh, for sure. And and but he was he was given this warning. And if you inhabit that spy world, you know you're bound to be paranoid at a certain amount, you know, point of time. Um, given you know the, the sort of missions that he was um, employed uh, for, for for the CIA. I think the part of the joy, if you like, perhaps the wrong word, part of the fascination of writing this book is it's so difficult to prove or disprove much of it. Exactly. Who was it who led the CIA to Alaki? Was it Morton's guy? It's quite plausible. It's quite conceivable it was. But there were clearly they were running other traps as well. Same applies with Morton's friend, who he'd known for quite a long time and who had a very mixed record, it has to be said, but had clearly been involved at a very high level with some very dangerous people, people linked, for example, to the 1988, uh, 1998 uh, bombing of the U.S. embassies in East Africa. He was an operator, this guy. Uh, whether he'd gone off the rails, uh, whether Morton uh, took at face value what he said, and then on second thoughts, maybe it wasn't quite plausible, conceivable. It's all open to question. You cannot be 100% categorically sure of a lot of this stuff. As terrorism experts, I, I want to ask you this question. Um, my primary focus is scientific and technological intelligence. That's my field. And I found something very interesting in this book, that the, the use and the increasing use of technology by terrorist organizations, whether it was all the different burner phones, the smartphones, but also the encryption technology, the Mujahideen secrets, and the knowledge of how to get around Western intelligence use of technology. And of course, you see that more and more today with ISIS and, and, and terrorism, uh, you know, with the Snowden revelations and them figuring out what they can and can't do. Um, is that something that, that struck you when you were writing this book about this, this use? Or is it just something that you see every day as people who cover terrorism? I, I think it was very striking and, and notable for the fact they were doing this, Mujahideen secrets and other encryption software, uh, to get around Western intelligence tracking them well before the revelations of Edward Snowden. Al-Qaeda and other affiliates were aware uh, that American spy agencies uh, were trying to and had the ability uh, to track their communications and were uh, taking precautions. Uh, as I said, well before all these revelations came out, there have always been a lot of controversy uh, about the Snowden revelations. Have Al-Qaeda completely changed the way they do business? Well, actually, they're already being very careful way before Edward Snowden hit the headlines. I think that's true. Uh, works both ways, of course, because um, Morton uh, was in contact with some pretty dangerous people in Somalia, and uh, on one particular instance, uh, he supplied the equipment that had been suitably tailored by the CIA in terms of a BlackBerry and a laptop that killed uh, Nabhan, who was a senior guy in um, Al-Shabaab. So, you know, both sides are using as much, te much technology as they possibly can. Um, and it's a constant battle. One side moves ahead, the other one catches up, and so on. And it's only going to get more complex um, as, as technology evolves and as Al-Qaeda realizes that it needs 
some some young smart technicians on its side and it, and it values these people very very highly that they're very highly thought of and well protected so it's going to go on like that except probably at an exponentially faster rate one of the things that jumped out at me in the book is the decision by morton storm to leave radical islam behind and to volunteer to spy for the west to spy for pet which is danish intelligence and then in turn mi6 and cia in the book there's no real great explanation, or at least one that I found as, you know, here is the laundry list, the bullet pointed list of why I'm deciding to do this. There's some information about not being able to go to Somalia, and this was a crisis of faith. There's information about him never wanting to hurt innocents, and of course this is somewhat diametrically opposed to the ideas of Al-Qaeda. And there's conversations he had with people inside Denmark or about in London about, uh, you know, how to use his talents in a perhaps better way by teaching people to read and training people and not turning them into soldiers. What is your perspective on this? Why, why did Morton Storm decide to be a double agent? We spent many hours going over this very point with Morton, trying to get him to retrieve from his memory just what was going through his mind at the end of 2006, beginning 2007. I don't think it was a, a sort of Damascene conversion, if you like. I think it was a process that had begun sometime previously when he was um, uncomfortable at the very least with the idea that it was legitimate to attack civilians and kill people. He imagined his own mother and ex-girlfriend and so forth becoming victims to some random terror attack on the streets of, of Denmark, for example. Um, but I think th there was a moment. Somalia, to him, was important. He wasn't setting out to go and carry guns for al-Shabaab and kill lots of people. He wanted to go and support the Islamist movement there by actually doing dairy farming as opposed to fighting. So it wasn't as though he had become a fully-fledged jihadist ready to start shooting people at that point. But when he was told, oh, you can't come, his expectations collapsed all of a sudden, and that made him reconsider a lot of things. And then it was a process thereafter as he began to read at the Quran again, to think about some of the things that Awlaki and others had, had talked to him about. So it was, in that respect, a process, I think, rather than an instant. And, and, and from the religious point of view, he, he, he basically, after he can't go to Somalia, he goes up and he Googles contradictions uh, in the Quran. Uh, something propels him. He's not quite sure what into, into doing this. And he, he, through the night, he reads all these various uh, contradictions that, that people have put forward uh, when it comes to, to, to the holy text, the religious text. And because he had a sort of Salafi, fundamentalist, literal uh, interpretation uh, of, of Islam, it was a bit like a house of cards. You take one card away, there's one contradiction, and the rest uh, falls down. And, and it's because he had uh, really this, this literal understanding that it all was eviscerated relatively quickly over a period of, of weeks uh, and, and months, uh, and, and then completely disappeared. And, and of course, he was then um, extremely angry to some degree that, that he'd been duped by this. And he, but he also realized just how dangerous the people were that wanted to go after him, uh, his former friends, he realized if they knew the process he'd just been through would want him dead. Right. I, to me, one of the, by far the most interesting subplot, well, there are two. There's, there's the Amina story, which is the where Morton Storm gets a wife for Anwar Alaki, but the Alaki story itself um, is, to me, the most interesting subplot. I mean, the Storm story as the plot is fascinating. 
But the Alaki story as an American, uh, as somebody who has uh, studied the ideas behind when it's justified to kill a terrorist, someone, again, who does S&T, who looks at drone technology and other things. The idea of Alaki, it's very easy to dismiss because you see him on TV. He looks like a bad guy. He looks like Bin Laden's son. I mean, he's a he's very much the stereotypical from central casting Arab bad guy. But when you hear him talk, and he's got no accent because he was born in New Mexico, uh, he he has a lot of Americanisms in his speech, and a lot of the emails that Morton Storm has provided show his true Americanism, where he's using just jargon and slang emoticon smiley faces at the end of emails when he's talking about what how Amina looks. Um, it made me sit back and say, he is a real American. Now, he's a terrorist bad guy, or he was, a better word. Um, but it makes me think twice. I mean, did, did, is that something that, that it's obviously going to continue to be an issue because there is no real answer to this justification for killing Americans without a trial? Um, are those things that came up when you were thinking about this book, or was it the story? I think it was both. I think there's a lot of very fascinating aspects to Alaki as a person, as as a preacher. Um, he attracted so many would-be jihadists or people who were actually quite lost, whether they were sitting in you know, rather cramped apartments in London or rural townships in Pennsylvania or wherever. He was extraordinarily alluring to these people. So as a character, he was fascinating. His own evolution as a person. After all, he gave an interview just after 9-11 saying these people who did this don't represent Islam and so forth and so on. His own path to radicalization is itself extremely interesting. The people he attracted, extremely interesting. His experiences in the United States uh, while he was uh, under investigation by the FBI. There were so many aspects to it. He was radicalized, but at the same time, a lot of it with him was personal. He felt that he'd been persecuted here, picked upon, humiliated. So there were, again, so many aspects with him as a character. And he becomes um, the, the one guy within the Al-Qaeda network uh, who's inspiring a generation of English speakers uh, back in the West uh, towards uh, jihad. And, and his... Uh, sermons on um, DVD and on YouTube uh, really were the inspiration for people involved in, in, in many uh, terrorist plots in the West. They all seem to have one common denominator and they were all listening uh, to, to, to Al-Aki. And that included uh, the Fort Hood shooter, uh, Nidal uh, Hassan, who'd exchanged uh, emails with, with Al-Aki in the period before uh, the uh, the shooting, and it's after the Fort Hood shooting, which is in November 2009, uh, that the CIA tell Morden, we need to get this guy. That's when the gloves came off, as, as, as far as Morden uh, recalls. Uh, that's when they, they told him uh, they wanted to go after him. And he asks, does that mean you want to arrest him? And his handler, Jed, says, no. Well, I don't think so. Or words to that effect. But the other interesting thing about Olaki, which I don't think should be neglected, is sex. Because he was a sex addict. He was uh, involved in all sorts of um, liaisons in the Washington area um, with, um, for want of a better word, escorts. Um, the, uh, the feds were after him. But it's a, it's a pattern because you see this with so many other jihadists. They've got this very, very messed up view about the role of women and how women should be treated and so forth. Some of the 9-11 hijackers, Nidal Hassan was another one. So, so that was a really interesting aspect of him too. 
And early on, you know, Morton had real reservations about whether he, you know, he should be killed or that, that maybe they, they should try and kind of arrest him, lure him to Sana so that they could arrest him. Uh, real reservations, because after all, this was his, one of his mentors, his, his friend, somebody he'd, he'd known for many years. He knew his, his, his kids. Um, but, but during the course of, of 2011, Morton comes to realize that, that Aulaki uh, is a huge danger uh, to the West. And one of the reasons he realizes this, this is that Aulaki is interested uh, in uh, New York Times reporting uh, on uh, AQAP, his group, developing a plan to put the poison, the toxin ricin in bombs. And, and Morton realizes this is what Aulaki is up to. This is what he's planning. This is what he's capable of. And so he moved uh, from a position of, well, hopefully we can maybe arrest him, take him off the battlefield that way, to a position where this guy is incredibly dangerous um, he could be plotting catastrophic terrorism against the West. He's inspiring people uh, to do this. He needs to be taken out. And so there's this big debate in the United States about how much of a danger Al-Aki was. From Morton's perspective, he, he came to realize that he was a very large danger indeed. And I think that echoed Morton's own evolution as far as Islam was concerned as well. This was a progression on his part from um, thinking that as a friend of his, he'd really like Al-Aki not to be murdered from thin air, but to, to be arrested and kept in Yemeni custody and so forth. And that, although the circumstances were very different, was it kind of uh, almost repeated some of the things that went on with his own evolution as far as his view of Islam was concerned and, and then ultimately turning away from Islam. It wasn't an overnight decision. He, he's a guy who thinks deeply and constantly about everything he goes through uh, and uh, re-examines his thoughts and his perspectives all the time and and so that is I think part of the book that he's got this constant internal agony about what he's doing going on. It's a, it's a very complicated story and and so when I saw the news report that this was going to eventually be a movie um, at first I was excited it's a fantastic story but somewhat apprehensive at the same time a story this complicated it's not easy to do uh, in a two-hour movie there's a lot going on a lot of moving parts um, I'm sure excitement, something you guys felt when, when you first heard of this as well, uh, is there apprehension about the potential Hollywoodization of a, something you worked so many years on? I think there's, there's this huge sense of excitement. I mean, uh, the Paul Greengrass, uh, the director uh, developing this, um, is somebody who has a uh, you know, proven track record of putting out fantastic movies uh, on, on this kind of you know, genre, you know, the reality Genre. Uh, he's someone you know who, who was responsible for a couple of the Bourne films, uh, for um, the the recent movie with um, uh, Tom Hanks, Captain Phillips, Captain United Phillips, and so yeah. you know somebody who's just incredibly skilled at putting these kind of movies together. And you you know as as authors, really you know very confident in in the capability of of, of him and his team to kind of put something really exciting together and you've got to take a step back as authors at a certain point. And you know there's obviously some trepidation when you hand the baby over to someone else and and see how they treat it. Uh, There's bound to be but at the same time I think it's really important that uh, an entirely new audience will be brought to this story through the film that that won't read the book. They will understand hopefully a little bit about uh, how people become Islamic extremists or jihadists what goes through their mind, and how, in the end, some of them do actually think, this is not for me. And Morton's not alone in that. A lot of other people have repented, if you will, and have decided this is not the path for me. And he's a great example, but but he's not exceptional. And as long as I get to um, 
play the old lady in the burka in scene four, I'll be just fine about it. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you. And we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we will see you next month.